All right, it's great seeing you this morning. Uh, we are continuing on in this series on God with us, with others. And you know, Emmanuel means God with us. And so we're just taking a closer look at who Jesus is by looking at Jesus interacting with other people. Because you know you can get to know someone by watching them from a distance. How do they interact with other people? How do other people interact with them? Uh, when someone is with people who are rich or poor or old or young or family or strangers, you can learn a lot about that person just through the observations. And so we're going to learn more about Jesus. We're going to learn, we're going to get to know him better actually personally as we see him today interacting with some religious insiders. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but we're Christians, we're in church. We're inside, I guess we're kind of religious insiders to a degree, a little bit different than Jesus, but some of this that I say today, it may hit home in a way that's kind of convicting, and if you think I'm picking on you, I am not. I'm picking on my mom. Uh, no, actually, it's not really her. I'm, I'm the lead religious insider of the place, and so if you feel a little kind of convicted here, well, that's good, that's wonderful. Uh, Jesus kind of confronts religious insiders from time to time uh, because we need to be redirected to grace. And that really happens around churches quite a bit. But before we get into what Jesus says, I want us to take a close look at how Jesus says what he says and to, to whom he says it. Uh, because how he talks to these religious insiders of his day reveals something important about Jesus, and that is this guy is bold. He is without any, uh, without even a milligram of hesitation, fear. There's no FUD in Jesus. Fear, uncertainty, doubt. He is very certain in a situation where these religious leaders, all of whom are the age of Jesus or older, and all of whom who see themselves as religious superiors, even in this situation that could be potentially overwhelming or intimidating, Jesus is just so straight out there in a way that would have caused people in his day to gasp. In fact, what I want to do is lay out for you the contrast between our culture and Jesus' culture so that you will get that this is not like an online debate or somebody's trying to one-up the other person. The day of Jesus is very different, and so the way in which he responds should absolutely fill you and me with shock and awe. So before we get into what he says, let me just kind of lay out a few things, and this is really important. I, I, I read this rebuke, basically, of a Christian leader, Christian Bible scholar, Paul Menier, and he called, basically, Christian communicators on the carpet for sometimes unintentionally removing the shock and awe from biblical passages. Here's what he said. In helping others traverse the scriptures, we can, like Americans junketing in Asia, carefully select the itinerary, stop only at Western-style hotels, use guides who speak fluent English, eat only American food, albeit with quaint seasonings, and shop for foreign bric-a-brac with, America, with bank AmeriCards. Indeed, the guiding of travelers through the world of the Bible with a minimum of culture shock is often assumed to be the chief function of ministers and teachers. They preserve the illusion of travel without its risk or its profit. They remain blissfully unaware of how completely they have destroyed the integrity and independence of that other world. And what Paul Menier is driving at 
is if you're a teacher, if you're a communicator, if you're a pastor, you've got to be very careful not to tame or denominationalize or Americanize the Scripture. So before we read this together, let's just think about our culture first. You probably recognize that we live in an anti-authoritarian age where youth is worshipped and where everybody's an expert and nobody grants authority to anyone else. Will you get on social media and you see that you've got all kinds of experts or self-identified experts who are looking for other experts to share in their expert opinion? And you don't have to even be really all that scholarly to write a book. You can just be good with voice recognition software, send it off to somebody who's an editor online and publish your own book within 30 days if you want to do that sort of thing. And you can influence hundreds of thousands of people, and your only qualification is you've got a decent singing voice, clear skin, and full lips. And that's it. So in our age, where nobody's an expert and everybody's an expert and everybody's doing their own thing and nobody grants authority to anybody else, it's kind of hard for us to leave this situation, put ourselves in Jesus' situation, where in the day, the religious leaders were called rulers. And the masses saw themselves as legitimately intellectually and spiritually inferior to those who ruled over them. What I'm driving at is you would never, ever, ever speak down and do it directly to those who were rulers over you. That just did not happen. But when Jesus responds to the religious leaders the way that he does, everybody who is witnessing this is going to come to one of two conclusions. Either Jesus is the biggest fool in the history of Israel or he's divine. You, you are not left open some sort of middle ground option with Jesus on the basis of how he talks to these religious leaders who see themselves as his superiors and who are in fact talking down to Jesus and judging him in this moment. And so I'm going to read the scripture to you in just a second. This is Mark chapter 7. If you've got your Bibles, you may want to open up to Mark chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 1 through 23. Before we stand together though, I'm going to read a few verses of explanation before we get to what Jesus says. And when we get to what Jesus says, I'm going to give you some visual signals to help you to see how absolutely off the charts Jesus is in his response to the Pharisees, to the teachers of the law. You've probably seen in basketball games, NBA basketball games, or NCAA basketball team games, which, by the way, if you didn't know, the NCAA tournament was won by Baylor. I, I don't know if you knew that or not, so let me just remind you of that. Uh, but you can see sometimes players will come off the bench and they do all sorts of things to signal to the crowd. That's amazing. And so you've got all these moves like, you know, hold me back while I hold you back kind of thing. And you go, ooh, you know, you just got burned. And I used to like the, you know, you got these kind of moves and put your hands there like you just don't care. And there used to be the, the little signal from uh, Kobe Bryant, which is like the face melt. You do this, like, you know, like he's falling apart or something. So I'm going to give you some signals as I'm reading through this so that you really get just how absolutely off the chart, slam dunk in your face Jesus is when it comes to the Pharisees, okay? Now, before we get to that, let's go ahead and read together the first few verses of the chapter, starting with verse 1, of course. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. 
Now, Mark is writing to a Greco-Roman world largely. Of course, there are going to be Jews that are reading this too, but he has to do some explanation to people who are not a part of the Jewish world. And he says, The Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, let me explain something to you real quickly here. Uh, When the Pharisees have this tradition, it's more than, hey, these are some good ideas or some cherished beliefs or practices. The tradition of the elders was deemed to be every bit as uh, Torah level as the written law. And by Torah, I mean the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law. There was also an oral law that was passed down from one Pharisee to the next to the next. And if you were a Pharisee, you were expected to memorize word for word this oral law that contained these different sections, uh, sections on festivals and agriculture and civil uh, and uh, criminal law, a section on women. How would you like to read that since none of the women got to participate in writing that little section? It's kind of interesting. And then on top of that, there were some guidelines for holy things and purification rites. All of this was oral law and every bit as authoritative as the written Torah. This didn't get written down, actually, until about 200 years after Jesus by uh, Rabbi Judah the Prince in in something that's called the the Mishnah now. But when they're talking about the tradition of the elders, we're not just talking about cherished beliefs or some common practices or insider tribal knowledge. No, this is real, authoritative, oral law. Let's keep reading. When they come together from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observed many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Now I'm going to read that again, because that sounds like a question. It probably comes out like this. Why do your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of, not, instead of eating their food? With unclean hands. They know the answer to the question. This is a rhetorical question. They're letting Jesus know, we're your superiors and we caught you being inferior and we want to call you out in front of everybody. Now remember, there's one of Jesus, several of them, they're his age or older, and they see themselves as his superiors. And everybody else in the crowd actually sees them as the superiors too because these are the rulers of Israel. That's the situation. Now check out the response. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. It's pretty cool. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrite. Woo! You get it? As it is written, that's the first time hypocrites occurs in the book of Mark there. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Woo! Okay, I can keep going. I'll, I'll, I'll calm down here because it's just one after the other after the other. They worship me in vain. Woo! And their teachings are but rules taught by men. Face melt. You have let go of the commands of God. Woo! And are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Woo! Right? I don't know how everybody was expressing this around there. Maybe some people were were passing out. You know, you do have times when Jesus would raise the dead before the resurrection. I think one of those miracles happened right here because somebody like passed out from overexcitement. No kidding. It's crazy. 
For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father and mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corbin, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Therefore, you, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like this. Woo! In your face, but it gets even worse. Check this out. And Jesus called the crowd to him. And he's using the Pharisees as an object lesson. And he's lecturing to the crowd about the Pharisees like you talk about your kids in front of them as if they're not actually even there. Jesus is talking to the crowd. He goes to another level and he says, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he'd left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? You know, I mean, like, if he's going to do it to the Pharisees, he's got to give some of that to his disciples. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, check this out, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. What? He's been getting on to the Pharisees for elevating man's law to the level of God's law. And now he's dealing with the Torah, God's law, and saying part of this is fulfilled. So it doesn't apply anymore. All foods are clean. Forget the kosher stuff. Jesus says that. Crazy. He went on. What comes out of a person is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a person unclean. May God bless the reading of a shocking word. You may be seated. Now, like for real, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's this statement from the crowds who listen to Jesus' teaching, and they say, it says, they were amazed because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus here is not debating. He's not discussing. He is declaring how it is. He is exercising his authority as the ruler over the rulers. And he's also exercising his authority even when it comes to the Torah itself. You can't come away from the way in which Jesus deals with people, in particular the religious insiders, and say, oh, I think Jesus was just a good guy, but he wasn't God, or a wise teacher, but I don't submit my life to him as if he's deity. No, no, no. The way Jesus talks to people does not leave that option available to you. He's either the biggest fool that ever lived, or he is divine, the Son of God. You see the deity of Christ dripping from every letter in the New Testament, not just from the miracle stories, but the way in which he views himself as he talks to other people. Now, as I think we're going to see, Jesus is not a fool because there's incredible wisdom that comes from all of his teaching, including this. So what is it that he does say to religious insiders? Now, some of you are saying, okay, why should I care about this? Because, okay, that was then, this is now. I don't feel like I'm a Pharisee or anything like that. And 
And so there were these unclean laws and ritual cleansings, and who cares about any of this stuff? Why does that apply to us? Why should I care? Well, you should care because Jesus never talked about anything that was unimportant. Here's why you should care. Jesus is addressing a universal, profound principle that applies to all people, not just to Christians, not just to religious people, but to all people. Here's the, the, the universal, profound principle that is at stake here. Everyone deals with this deep sense of uncleanness. And if you do not deal with your spiritual uncleanness appropriately, it will trouble you. You will be frustrated and you will trouble and frustrate everyone else around you. Okay, let, let's, let's think through this. You don't have to be a believer. You don't have to agree with what the Bible even teaches about sin, okay? You don't even have to agree that this list of sins is the, your list of sins and that we even agree on what the sins are or, or even the definition of sin. Everybody has this sense internally of isolation, of decay, and of stain. You've done something and you wish you could be rid of it. You wish the past were not just still present. You wish there wasn't a stain. You wish there was something you could get over. You wish there wasn't something eating at your insides. You wish there wasn't something that was coming between you and someone else or you and God or even fundamentally between you and you. You feel like you're being torn apart. This is a universal experience, this sense of uncleanness. I'll give you a, an example of this or a demonstration of the reality of this. You've probably heard of Macbeth. How many of y'all have heard of Shakespeare? All right, for the record, more than half. Uh, I've heard of Shakespeare and you've heard of Macbeth. And there's this play in Macbeth where Lady Macbeth has been, well, she's guilt-ridden and her mind starts to fall apart because of the guilt of participating in a murder and and there's this scene where she feels like there's blood on her hands. It's not actually blood on her hands, but figuratively there's blood on her hands. And she's trying to get it out. She's trying to wash it off. And in the play, she's in the dark. And there's a candle which she will never be apart from. But the darkness kind of accentuates this moment in the play. And, and it's out. You know, she's just trying to get it out. Out damned spot. And I know I'm not supposed to say that word, but darn is a bad word for Baptist too. And so I don't know what else to say. But damned is the right word because she feels damned. She feels damned. And so the next thing she says is, hell is murky. You know why she says this? Because she feels like she's in hell. She feels like it's dark and it's murky and she can't get out. She can't see her way out. She's in a bog. She's in a fog. She's stuck. And she says, all the perfumes in Arabia will not sweeten these little hands. They, they stink and nothing's going to cover it. And her life is falling apart. Her mind is falling apart. Her soul is in decay. There's a scene here, too, where the husband sees his wife falling apart, turns to a doctor and says, Canst thou not with some sweet, oblivious antidote cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff with which weighs upon the heart? She's not clean. She can't get clean. She can't put her life back together again. The stain is not coming off. She's alienated from herself. She's isolated from her husband and, and her future. Now, you may have never felt that before. You may not even understand the theology of sin, but I've never run into anybody who's ever seen that scene or familiar with scenes like it who says, you know, I just don't understand that. Everybody understands this. This sense of spiritual uncleanness is, in fact, 
a universal, profound human experience. And until you have learned how to deal appropriately with that sense of uncleanness, you'll be troubled and frustrated, and you will trouble and frustrate everyone else around you. That's the problem. And that's largely the gist of what's being communicated in the Old Testament with regards to these ritual purifications. The, the priests had to, before they could go into the temple, before they could go into the tabernacle, they had to wash. They had to wash their hands and wash their feet. And, and you, you couldn't touch a dead body or a dead animal going. You had to wait a week. And if you had an open wound or you had an issue of blood or, or, or you had a skin disease or something, some infection that was causing pus or you had diarrhea or you or you had mildew on utensils in your house or in your clothes, you couldn't go in. You know what all that's communicating? All of this is communicating that when it came to the priests going in to be with God, they had to have the same relationship to sin as doctors would have to dirt and decay and disease before going into the inner sanctum of the operation room. You know how it is with the doctor... They don't just deliver the baby and then immediately jump over to the ER and do surgery. They don't, you don't work on an autopsy and then go over immediately and do your brain surgery. What happens? There's this time of ritual purification where the surgeons wash their hands to their elbows multiple times and they get all scrubbed and then they put on their scrubs, which is essentially garments that are clean that are undefiled. You do surgery, you go through the ritual, you can do another surgery. But you never jump from this to over here. There's always the cleansing time. You know why that's the case? What is God communicating? Here's what he's communicating. He's communicating that sin pollutes the soul the same way dirt, disease, and decay will pollute your body. And we know what happens with dirt and disease and decay. Three major things happen. One is isolation. If you get sick, you're quarantined. You're separate. If you're dirty and you haven't washed for a week or for a month, you're isolated. Everybody make sure of that. But stay away. If you have this disease, there's decay. And some of you have dealt with MRSA. Some of you have dealt with cancer. Unfortunately, you know the decay that happens inside of your body because of the disease. And on top of all of this... There's the stain. You get, a, you get a scar and it's stuck. And there are certain things that can stain and you can't get it out. All of these things happen around sin. And until you learn how to deal with that uncleanness, you will be stuck like Lady Macbeth. Scrub and scrub and nothing's coming out. And you pour the perfume on and nothing gets rid of the stench. And you're losing contact with reality and you're driving everybody else around you crazy. That's the problem. Now, Jesus in this passage is kind of confronting the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, about the way in which they are trying to solve this problem of uncleanness. There is this problem of uncleanness, but he says the way you're solving it is all wrong and it's never going to work. Now, before we get into why their solution is so ineffective, let's first think through what is their solution. And I think the easiest way to, to communicate this or articulate the solution is the solution to dealing with spiritual uncleanness is to develop rules weighted in favor of one's own preferences. In other words, here's the rules. They're my rules. They're our rules. Here's the rules. We live by these rules. Therefore, we're clean. Therefore, we're good. And that's how it worked out in Jesus' day. Uh, 
In particular, it manifests itself in this way. There were certain ceremonial laws that applied to the priests in particular. And some people along the way said, okay, if it's good enough for the priests, it ought to be for everybody. If they have to wash their hands before they go into the workplace of worship, we have to wash as well in order to go into worship. And then they started expanding that and said, well, if you have to wash your hands before you go see God in the tabernacle, well, then you need to wash your hands before you pray. And it just went on and on and on. And there were all of these additional rules that got piled on top of rules. And it was called the halacha, which is the, the fence around the law. That was the oral traditions. And Jesus takes issue with this because of two things. One, when you start trying to put a fence around the law, you've misunderstood the law. You've gotten away from the principles and you thought that you could reduce it because the law wasn't nearly as big or as profound as you thought it was in the first place. We'll get into that a little bit next week. But he has some difficulty with, hey, you've got all these rules out here because when you put all these rules out here, you can't possibly keep all the rules without there being some kind of contradiction. And so you're going to choose the lesser ones over the greater ones. And in the process of that, as you make up your own little list based on a list that you kind of created, you're going to think your list is better than somebody else's list. And that starts creating division within a nation or between a people or within the family. The specific example that Jesus gives is how Leviticus chapter 27 is kind of taken and misused. Leviticus chapter 27 is this chapter where basically God communicates, everything belongs to me. Nobody else has a claim over your possessions to the degree that I do. I am first priority when it comes to a claim over you and all you possess. Based on Leviticus chapter 27, they, they came up with this little thing called Corbin. This little, hey, I'm just going to declare everything that I have as belonging to God. And since I declare everything I have as belonging to God, that means I don't have to take care of my parents. Because everything belongs to God. I'm sorry. I, I wish I could give 10%. I wish I could give to the poor. I just don't have any more because I gave it all to God. And so the little Girl Scouts would come around through the Jewish village. They'd knock on the doors and say, it all belongs to God. I'm sorry, I can't buy your thin mints. Go to the agnostic next door. They'll help you out. It was kind of that, that sort of thing. Or it'd be sort of like, hey, I give all of my time at the church. I don't have time to go to my kid's soccer practice. Or I give 25% away. I'd really like to help with regards to their education. Or I, I spend too much time volunteering to actually get a second job to help ends meet. Because, you know, my whole life belongs to God. And you're basically using God so as to do what it is that you want to do. But that's within the rules. And so you're okay because you made that your list. So I'm clean. I'm good. Jesus says, you've lost perspective. Now, some of us are saying, okay, that's really good. Thank you for that history lesson. I appreciate that. But what does that have to do with anything? Here's what it has to do with everything. Everybody, in some degree or another, does this. This is the religious solution that is not only something that religious people do. You could be a non-churchgoer. You could be an agnostic. You can be an atheist. And the way in which you typically 99.9% .9 of the time deal with the uncleanness is you've made your little list and you say, well, I'm keeping the list, so I'm good. I'm clean. No problem here. And internally, you just move on because you're doing your little good list. Let me give you an example of this. I, uh, I came across this just a week ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago. There was this survey done by Agnes Reed. Does anybody here know Agnes Reed? Does that sound familiar? Maybe it's just something in Canada. Agnes Reed had done this survey of, of 1,528 Canadians, a poll. And the poll was taken to survey people's moral perspectives on a variety of issues. Among the more interesting findings was this. 51% of the Canadians that were surveyed 
said it is always or usually immoral. That's the word. Always or usually immoral to use plastic straws. Now, I've heard plastic straws are bad for the environment. I have nothing to gain by promoting plastic straws. But that was the feeling. 51% It's always or usually immoral to use plastic straws. In that same survey, 26% said it's always or usually immoral to have an abortion. 20% says it's always or usually immoral for a doctor to assist, to actively assist in someone's death. Now I'm thinking, okay, so we have people that would say, yeah, okay, yeah, I euthanized grandma a month ago and had an abortion this morning, but I'm good because I don't use plastic straws. I use bamboo. Now you think, that's weird. Yeah. Have you not noticed some of the virtue signaling gone wild? Have you not noticed the oddity of some of the lists? Where does this come from? I'll tell you exactly where it comes from. It comes from our universal problem of needing to be clean. And this universal, not only a Christian, Jewish, Muslim thing, it's a universal religious spirit that says, I'm going to deal with my uncleanness by coming up with a personal preference list then doing it and saying, I'm good. It's not that hard to trade in a plastic straw for a bamboo one. If I were taking that approach, I would be radically rabid against straws too. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, and maybe some of you are watching for the first time. So, yeah, yeah, that's what Baptists do all the time. This is how it is at church. Our list is better than yours. Those liberal Canadians, those conservative rabbis from 2,000 years ago, let's just pile on and say a prayer and be gone and we'll feel good. Well, you know, it's not just old rabbis and new Canadians. And I have nothing against Canadians. When Canadians get saved, though, I have found most of them moved to Texas. Uh, But I digress. Does this apply to us? Yes. Even in churches, even in churches that preach Jesus and grace, we can get kind of, here's our list. And I'm okay, and I'm more okay than they're okay, because this is the better list. Let me give you some really simple examples. And we have preferences. There's nothing wrong with preferences. But when you take the preference and you elevate it to law, then we've got problems. Hymns. I love hymns. But did you, did you know about 500 years ago when hymns started being sung, uh, the church had a problem with it. There were a lot of people who said, oh, this is not going to work. Because here's what, what, what they did. They sang psalms in Latin. That's the way you do it. And so when people started singing songs in their native language to songs that were not in the Bible that somebody made up, they were not really excited about it. And so Martin Luther and his song, you know, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, is my favorite. I love that song. It's my favorite hymn. It's set to a bar tune, a tune that was very popular, sung in bars. People said, we can't do that. And some of you now are going, oh, man, I can never sing that song again. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to ruin it for you. But And then 400 years later, you know, maybe a couple of decades, three or four decades ago, um, people started singing psalms again, and they said it to contemporary music, and people said, we can't do that. Those are 7-Eleven songs. That's not going to work. And if you don't like contemporary music, that's okay. That's fine if it's a preference. But then some churches said, this is the way you do it. And oh, this is the way you do it. And they started elevating that to a status of law, and then churches divided 
And most of the church, times when churches divide or when people leave, it has absolutely nothing to do with doctrine. It has to do with Pharisaism in the church. Here's another example. Do, we, we stand when we read the scriptures together. I typically say, you know, out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word, do you please stand? I do not say out of respect for ourselves who are respecting God by standing, let's all stand. There's a difference. And the difference is true worship or, you know, vomitous, pharisaical self-righteousness. If we ever start taking pride in the way we do things rather than doing things simply to honor God, we're going to stop doing those things. I don't always stand when I read the Bible. When I'm at, at lampposts and I start reading the scripture, I don't stand every time. Then sit down and stand. It's like, you know, come on, this is just what we do. I pray three times a day whenever I eat meals. I was going to say every time I eat a meal, but I eat five or six times a day, which is a problem. I do pray for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, public or private. That's just what I do. I don't always pray over snacks. Every time I get a new cup of coffee, I don't say another prayer. Where is it in the Bible that you have to do this before meals? Or why not after meals? Or do you even have to do it at meals? It's a tradition. I like it. It's meaningful to me. The hymns are meaningful to me. The cross is meaningful to me. But, but did you know that for the first 400 years of Christian history, we really have no archaeological evidence whatsoever that the cross was used prominently in churches or used in churches at all as a symbol of Christianity? You're not going to find them on steeples or on walls or on letterhead or anything like that. You know when the, the, apparently the first time the cross is used... It's used by Emperor Constantine on Roman shields in battle as a good luck charm. Now, I still like the cross. We got a couple of crosses in here. When we first started over here, we had a cross in the foyer, and that was it. And then some people got on to me, like, you don't have a cross. You don't believe in the cross. And then we had some people, actually, not a lot, but we had a few that left the church because we didn't have crosses on the wall. Like, okay, the sanctuary across the street does not have a cross anywhere in the sanctuary except on the top of the Christian flag, which the Christian flag came about in about 1942, and it was partly so we could have an American flag on one side and a Christian flag on the other side. It's like, I don't know, that's just weird. I like the cross. Don't None of you send an email to me saying, Ernest, why do you hate the cross? If you have an email that you want to send later, send it to me. My address is brett at msbchurch.com. I'd love to hear from you, okay? Whoever came up with the idea that the blank cross was better than a cross that has Jesus pictured on it? Where'd that rule come from? Well, if you want something that's empty, why not the empty tomb? I mean, that's kind of the symbol. I don't know where we get these things. And, and I prefer all these things. These things are here. But when we take preference and we elevate it to like the rule, around the rule, and then we feel clean because we do that. When I was in seminary, I learned that, you know, different preaching styles for different people. And there are some people that prefer, actually, they want to come to church and get beat up on and yelled at. We kind of make fun of that a little bit, like, oh, you know, hellfire and brimstone. And, and I met some people say, if I don't get hellfire and brimstone, I feel like I hadn't been to church. What is that all about? Well, it's a tradition. I don't feel like I'm right if I haven't been beat up, chewed up, and spit out. We might have a hellfire and brimstone service for those of you who feel disappointed uh, that you didn't get beat up every Sunday. I don't know. Here's the point. The point is, we all do this, and we do it in subtle ways. And we have our little list, and we think our list is better than their list. And consequently, at the end of it, 
we've kind of minimized Jesus because we somehow thought that this list that we came up with was equal to Torah and we got all the way removed from the Torah, which basically is there to help you to understand that you cannot live up to the law and that you actually do need a Savior. And we start becoming our own saviors in subtle ways. And consequently, not only are we not worshiping Jesus as we ought, but we start dividing from other people. And that's like the heartbreaking thing. I can't really, I'm not kidding you. I visited with a guy earlier this week, a fellow pastor. I won't tell you who he is, but we just got to talking about how difficult the last year, year and a half has been. And, and he talks to a lot of pastors because of his job. He's connected with people all over the nation. And the universal experience of sadness among the pastors has been along these lines of, why would people divide over this or this? And it doesn't even matter, have anything to do with the gospel. And we kind of came to a similar conclusion. Even within the body of Christ, there is this list thing and this one-upmanship and this add to the law, and I'm living by that, and I feel like I'm clean, and I'm more clean than they're clean, and yeah, yeah, they're okay, I'll accept them, I just don't want to worship with them because we don't have the same list. Jesus is right to be so direct, brutally direct, to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he knew where this was going to take him. You don't expose religious list-making people and get away with it. They will crucify you in the end. And they did. But I think the reason that Jesus is fine with this is not only is he willing to speak the truth, but he's also willing to fulfill the law in a way that we needed because the ultimate solution is not come up with a list that's even easier for us to keep. The ultimate solution is that we need to take something or someone in that will purify and change and renew and change us from people of law into people of grace, from people in bondage to our little list to people who've been liberated in the best of ways where from the inside out we live righteous, holy, godly, transformed lives. This is why Jesus says that whole little religious pharisaical program, the reason it doesn't work is because the fundamental problem isn't out here and you need an additional program or an additional practice or even a changed belief of sorts. What you need is purification on the inside because that's where the problem lies. Here's how Jesus puts it. And we'll close on this because he's so straightforward. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and make a person unclean. Evil thoughts come from within. Sexual immorality comes from the heart that's desires have been twisted. All of these other things, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, foolishness, all of this comes from inside of us. It doesn't just get piled onto us. It's not just that sin happens to us or I made a mistake. We did the wrong knowing it to be wrong, and we did the wrong anyways, and we couldn't help ourselves because there was a problem of brokenness inside of us to begin with. But Jesus knows how to fix that. In order to fix that, he has to take on religion head on. 
And he fulfills the law to the point where he knows those ceremonial laws will pass because all those laws were pointing to Jesus and the purification that he brings. And he takes on the religious leaders knowing he's going to be crucified in the end, but he's good with that because he knows that by his broken body and shed blood, he can come flooding right into your life and change your heart and change your mind and change your life from the inside out. That's the solution. And to the degree that we trust these externals, we are denying what Jesus did. And then division happens within the body of Christ. This is not how it should be. And so this morning, as we remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed, let us confess wholeheartedly without reservation that Christ and Christ alone is the solution to our uncleanness. And when we accept that solution and that solution alone, relationships change. And our lives change. And we see the wisdom of Christ who before the foundation of the world was slain for you and me. It was in his mind from the beginning to give himself up for the likes of you and me. This morning as we remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed, let's confess not just our sins, but let's also confess our attitude toward this false solution. Let's confess our own self-righteousness. Let's confess in such a way that we are trusting in Christ and Christ only as the solution. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Jesus, we just want to say thank you for doing what you did. And, uh, and we have a tendency to think, yeah, yeah, you did that 2,000 years ago, but you did it for us. We, we are, we're, we're the same as the Pharisees and the Canadians and all the rest. I mean, we're, this is a human problem. And, uh, and, and when we think you didn't just die for sinners, you, you died for religious insiders too. We, you, you died for the people who crucified you. you. You gave yourself for us in all of our religious independence whereby we were somehow manufacturing our own cleansing and salvation. In our arrogance, in our foolishness, you still died. So I don't know what else to say other than thank you. Thank you for presenting the only solution that brings true, merciful, graceful change from within. Thank you for fulfilling the law in a way we never could. Thank you for being our Lord and our Savior. We acknowledge in order for us to get what we need, we need to take in a purity. We need a Savior who can change us. And we acknowledge in this moment we have such a Savior. If there are any here who have yet to acknowledge you, I just pray that in this moment they would say, God, I know I've sinned. And it's not just the things that I did. It's been my attitude toward you that somehow, in some way, I didn't need you that I could atone for and cover myself. And I realize that's arrogance, foolish, and it doesn't really solve a thing. I've been able to avoid these greater issues. I've been tossing aside straws while embracing this, that, and the other. 
I've been tossing aside the straws or claiming Corbin and somehow in some way I've been disrespectful to my parents I've been radically independent of you I have looked down my nose at other people there's been envy and greed and jealousy inside of me I can't just change that with a snap of fingers I know I need a savior I know I need a love that I do not have a grace that I cannot give I need, a, I need mercy and so now Lord I am turning from my sin and selfishness and self-righteousness and I'm just trusting Jesus as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin, of my waywardness, of my independence, of my arrogance and pride. Thank you for coming into my life. I don't know why you want a relationship with someone as messed up as me, except I do know you can and will change me by your grace. Thank you, Christ, for being my Savior and Lord. Amen.